good afternoon, everyone. Um, let me welcome you to Gospel in the City, um, particularly if it's your first time. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we meet up every week like this, more or less, uh, to uh, get together, have some lunch, have a, have a cup of tea, and to have a look at what God's Word has to say to us who are living in and working in Belfast City Centre. Um, this series that we're doing at the minute is uh, from 1 Peter. We're kind of doing a whistle-stop tour of, of 1 Peter. And um, last week we began the series. Uh, we have more Casement with us, who was... Um, he leads Cornhill Belfast, which is a, a kind of a training course for preachers. Um, Moore kind of gave us an overview of, of nearly one and a half chapters of, of 1 Peter, which was, was quite a kind of undertaking. But I think the basic message was, Peter says to us that we are aliens and strangers in the world if we're Christians. There's a sense in which this world is not our home, because we have a better home, a better hope that we're living for. That's the kind of rough gist of what we've been looking at, and we, we think this is kind of a relevant series for us as we live and work in Belfast, because I suspect for many of us, working in the office uh, has started to feel like an increasingly strange thing. Uh, to be a Christian, we increasingly feel like we're maybe not fitting in just as easily as we perhaps once did. So we're hoping that this letter of 1 Peter, which really emphasizes Christians being strange uh, and living in the world, is going to help us uh, to do that in our workplaces. So we've reached 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, this afternoon, and you can find uh, a copy of the text there on your handout. So I'm going to read that and pray, and then I'll invite more to come up and speak to us. So 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says to these Christians, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. Uh, let's pray for God's help as we come and have a look at that passage together. Uh, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather uh, like this in the middle of our working days. And we thank you for the calling that you've given uh, to people through Jesus Christ uh, that we could have an eternal inheritance with you. And Father, as we, we think together now about what it means for Christians to live out this calling uh, in our workplaces, in our ordinary lives, we pray that you'll help us. Uh, help us to be attentive and to listen. Uh, even though we've got lots on our minds in the middle of a working day. Uh, we pray you'll help more as he speaks to us to open up uh, your word and explain it clearly and to help us to apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Thanks Sam. Um, it's good to be back with you uh, today uh, to continue looking a bit further in uh, 1 Peter. Uh, for today, I was given two verses, really, just 11 and 12 of chapter 2, although I'm going to uh, extend it uh, slightly, having been given practically too much last week. There's not too little, I could just manage on two verses, but I think the previous couple of verses actually help feed into um, what Peter is saying in verses 11 and 12. Um, I'm afraid I'm too old, or maybe too Northern Irish, to have experienced... Uh, the phenomenon of show and tell, but I have watched enough American TV 
uh, <coughs> read enough to know of this kind of concept. I think it probably is more common in the States, and I think it's creeping in more in Northern Ireland now, where in primary schools or elementary schools, as they call them in America, uh, children are encouraged to bring in something uh, to show to the class and then talk about it. Um, now, uh, I was looking, as you tend to do, uh, for examples of uh, interesting things that were uh, brought in for show and tell. And the best one I could come up with um, was a little boy who brought in a pair of gloves. Uh, and it turned out that these were the gloves that he wore when his father went to burgle houses. The father would put his son through an open window. The son would then go and open a door. He would stand outside while the father burgled the house. Now, I don't know what the ending of that story was, though I suspect the gloves never made a, another appearance at school. <clears throat> but um, I say that just to introduce this whole idea of showing and telling, because I think actually this is what Peter's talking about in these verses in Second Peter, except that he reverses the order. So he's talking about telling and showing. <clears throat> um, as I said, uh, we're supposed to be looking just at verses 11 and 12, um, but I want to bring in verses 9 and 10 because uh, there we get this idea of telling and then uh, in 11 and 12 we get the idea of showing. As Peter tells Christians, they are to tell and show. If you were here last week, you may remember how we considered that Peter, in the opening chapter of this letter to Christians who are under pressure from the pagan world around them, and feeling a bit marginalized, Peter's keen to remind them as to why it is that they don't feel completely at home in this world. Unlike those who are living for and hoping for the best that this world can give, Christians have a hope in a future inheritance beyond this life. And because of that hope, we are prepared to obey the truth of God's word, even if that is difficult, and even if at times it puts us at odds with the world around us. As we saw last week, the Christians to whom Peter is writing were having a hard time. It wasn't socially acceptable to be a Christian. People didn't necessarily respect them for their faith. And yet, as Peter has pointed out, that is to be expected if you are an exile, not living in the place that is your true home. We didn't have time last week to look at the other word that he puts alongside the word exile in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Sorry, that's not printed for you. But if you were to look at verse 1 of chapter 1, you would see that Peter calls these Christians to whom he's writing elect exiles. And that kind of idea of being elect or being chosen appears again at the start of verse 9 of chapter 2 where Peter tells the people to whom he's writing that they are a chosen race. These people may be of little or no standing in the eyes of the world, but they have been chosen by God to be his special people. Now, I don't intend to delve deeply into the doctrine of election today, but I do think there are a couple of points just worth making. Because often people get very worked up about how unfair it is that God should choose some people and not others. And I understand why that does cause a certain level of consternation. But one thing that I think is often missed is that, as far as I can see from 
the New Testament. The doctrine of God's electing grace is generally spoken of in the way that Peter speaks of it here in 1 Peter. It's spoken of to encourage Christians and not to cause them great angst. You see, what we must remember is that the Christians to whom Peter is writing are being looked down on by those around them. They're not thinking, how unfair of your God not to choose me. Instead, they're thinking, poor you, with your made-up God whom you can't see. You don't have any impressive statues of him or temples where you can worship him. And he doesn't seem to let you do the kind of things that would bring you a lot of fun and pleasure. You're really quite sad because, let's face it, anybody who is anybody is not a Christian. And so Peter's intention in telling the Christians that they have been chosen by God is to encourage them. He's saying, the world thinks that you are nobodies and losers. But that's not how it is. You are incredibly privileged and special because you have been chosen by God. But along with that privilege, there also comes responsibility. Because after he said in chapter 2, verse 9, that they're a chosen people, Peter then tells his readers what they've been chosen for. Not to sit around congratulating themselves on having been chosen. The end of verse 9 tells us that all Christians have been chosen, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. And that's the first of the two points that I've put down on uh, your outline. This is the tell bit of the tell and show. Christians are to tell the glory of God. We've been chosen to tell how wonderful God is because he has called us out of darkness, from the darkness of being bound to this world with its selfish and flawed ways, its broken and empty promises, and its ultimate meaninglessness. And he has brought us into his marvellous light where we begin to find meaning and hope as we see and understand this world in the light of the greater world to come. The gospel really is good news. And Peter has been seeking to remind his hearers of that in these opening chapters. But the fact remains that many people don't want to hear the message that we've been given to proclaim. The non-Christians around us are walking in darkness, but most of them are not too bothered by that. Well, they may accept that the world is not perfect, and they might wish that it was a bit better, but they don't see Jesus as being the answer to anything. Surely he would just make life a lot harder for them. So they don't want to be told of how wonderful and glorious God is. After all, the celebrities or businessmen or footballers or entertainers or social commentators that they're most influenced by, well, they don't seem to have any time for Christianity. So why would any right-thinking person get hung up on this rather outdated and repressive religion? And so if we're honest, we might be happier if Peter hadn't said that Christians are to tell the glory of God. We might have preferred if he just focused on the show bit. Uh, Although as we come on to that in a minute or two, we'll maybe realise that it's not totally straightforward either. But while there may be a few people around who will fearlessly tell anyone that they meet that they need to be saved, I think that probably most of us fall into the category where 
we just like to show that we're Christians, but say very little. The problem with that, however, is that unless we tell people that we are Christians, unless we try in some small measure at least to try to tell them what God has done for us and what he can do for them in Jesus, then we don't know what kind of message that they'll pick up simply by looking at us and observing us. They might just think that being a Christian is about being a nice, kind, honest person. When the good news of the gospel is not, if you try hard enough, you could be as nice as me. Nor is it, well, if you already think you're nicer than I am, then you have no need of the gospel. God's happy with you as you are. The truth of who God is and who we are in relation to him is not something that people automatically understand. And the fact that Jesus' death on the cross is the greatest act of love in human history is, again, something which needs to be spoken of and explained if people are to be brought from darkness to light. We live in a society where increasingly people have no real idea of who God is. And they will remain in their ignorance unless someone tells them. And the way that God has chosen for us for that to happen is not by writing messages in the clouds or just automatically sending random texts to people on their phones. He's given the task of making him known to those whom he has chosen to be his people, his followers. Now that's something that I think we obviously already know. But I think it's a challenge that we need to keep being reminded of. And maybe especially so when we think that people are not going to listen to us or they don't really want to hear what it is that we believe. And perhaps as well we think, well, the kind of way you're living, it's not really in line with how God wants us to. So it would just be such a big deal for anything to change in your life. It's probably easier if I say nothing. And of course, when we think of the context in which we work, things become more complicated because we're not paid to be evangelists. We're paid to get on with a particular job. And I'm not advocating that we effectively steal from our employer by proclaiming the gospel and failing to get on with our work. But the fact remains that we still have breaks in our working day. We do speak to those that we work with about non-work related matters. I'm quite sure there have been many conversations among people in offices this morning about Liverpool's epic comeback last night or the latest royal baby, although I'm not sure if there's as much to talk about. I saw some image on the TV as I walked in, so maybe there's more for people to uh, speak of now. I suppose one of the things that we find hardest as Christians is to introduce our faith into those kind of random conversations that we have in a a natural way to show that God is just a a part of our lives, that we do have a relationship with him. Perhaps we're very scared of ever saying, oh yeah, I was praying about that particular problem because that's bringing our faith into the, the public square and we don't want to do that. Everyone wants us to keep that private and as we become more aware of situations where people have got into trouble for mentioning their faith in a work setting that can cause us to to back off but perhaps almost run too far the other way because while we need to be wise in terms of when to speak and when to be silent 
and we need to recognize that there are certain ways of expressing things that are wiser than others. At the same time, we still do have relative freedom to speak of our faith in Jesus. But that doesn't take away from the fact that some people don't want to hear anything to do with the gospel. And they may even believe that our society would be a lot better if Christians weren't trying to push their views on others. So what are we supposed to do when people know we're Christians? We may have said something, but they don't want to listen to what we're saying. Well, that's when the second point comes into play. Because as well as telling the glory of God, Christians are to show the glory of God. And that's something we especially see in verse 12 of chapter 2. There Peter says, in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here he is clearly saying that Christians are to live in a way that is consistent with what we believe and say about God and the gospel. Notice that people may call us evildoers, but the fact of the matter should be that there's actually nothing in our conduct that they can point the finger at. They may not like what they see as the the values that we stand for, but actually when they analyse how we behave, there's nothing that they can really criticise. And perhaps when we start to think about that, we may find it a wee bit uncomfortable and, and begin to wonder whether showing the glory of God is as easy as we might first think. It's certainly true that you will find Christians who will say to their non-Christian friends or work colleagues, don't judge me, I'm no better than you and I don't claim to be. And in some ways I get where they're coming from. Christians still struggle with sin. We are far from perfect. But if we are strangers in this world, we should be striving to be different from the world. Peter lays out that challenge quite clearly in verse 11 when he says, As sojourners and exiles, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. He's saying that as Christians, we should be different. Not because we're perfect, but because we are battling with sin, we're not just giving in and taking the line of least resistance. And so it is fair to expect that when people look at our lives, they will see some difference. Not that they see perfection, but that they do see something in the way that we treat other people, the way we're kind to the really annoying person in the office, the way that we're not entering into all the gossip and backbiting, the way we treat everyone with respect, whether they're the owner of the company or the person who empties the bins. The challenges for us will vary depending on the situations in which we find ourselves and depending also on the issues that are the greatest temptation for us. So I don't want to get too prescriptive in terms of outlining how it is that you will show the glory of God in the context in which you find yourself. But I do think it's something that we need to be thinking about. I often do hear it said that there are many non-Christians who are much nicer to work with than some Christians. Now, in some ways, I think it sometimes suits people who aren't Christians to say that because they then think, well, that means I can discard and discount anything to do with Christian faith because it makes no difference to how people live. The reality may not be quite like that because is it really true that 
those who aren't Christians always act honourably, that they never lie to get out of an awkward situation, that they never throw a sickie because they're too hungover to come into work, that they always treat members of the opposite sex with respect, that they always work hard and never spend time gossiping or on social media. The fact remains, though, that as Peter encourages us to live honourable lives, he says that others, however much they hate Christianity and what they think it stands for, will be forced to admit that Christians do good, that they are honest in their dealings, that they are dependable, that they're kind and thoughtful towards others, that they're generous and they don't just selfishly look out for themselves. And the end result of that will be, as the end of verse 12 says, that they will glorify God on the day of visitation. By the day of visitation, he must surely mean the day when Christ returns to this earth. But it's maybe slightly less clear as to what it means by glorifying God. We know from elsewhere in scripture that when Christ returns, every knee will bow before him, either willingly or not. And everyone will be forced to acknowledge the glory of God as it is fully revealed. So it may be that there are will be those who have never become Christians, but who will be forced at the second coming to acknowledge that God has indeed been glorified in the good deeds that have been done by the Christians that they have known. Whether or not they acknowledged it in the midst of life on this earth, one day they will be forced to acknowledge that and to glorify God because he has been at work. Equally though, it may be that God is encouraging his readers with the prospect of some of their non-Christian friends and family becoming Christians because of the testimony of the lives of the Christians that they know. They may hear the message of the gospel and decide they don't much like it. But when they see the impact that the gospel has on the lives of the Christians they know, when they see the good effects of the gospel they then come to put their faith in Christ and therefore will be among those who will willingly glorify God on the day when he returns to this earth. One final thing, though, that we shouldn't forget as we think about what God is saying to us through his word in these verses that we've been looking at today is that Peter is not writing about a one-off activity. He's not saying, tell one person the gospel or do one good thing. If we're Christians, we should be those who tell and go on telling the glory of God. Not ramming it down people's throats, but in as natural a way as we can, continuing to proclaim the goodness of God and what he has done. We should also be those who show and go on showing by our lives that we're not giving in to sinful passions and desires, but are indeed seeking to live the kind of lives that are honouring to God and which do have an impact for him in the darkness in which we're living. And if that is the case, then God will indeed be glorified and we will then be living the strangely beautiful lives that he has called us to live. Let's pray together. Father, 
We pray that you will help us to take to heart the, the challenge of your word as we have thought about it just now. We know that often we can shirk away from speaking about you. Sometimes it's a wise thing to do. Other times it's just our fear of man that stops us. We also are aware that there may be times when we know that we are not blameless in how we conduct ourselves among the non-Christians that we know. We thank you, though, Lord, that you urge us to continue the fight, to continue the battle, and you promise us your help in that. Thank you for the power of your spirit to, to change us and to help us to evidence the, the good lives that Peter is talking about here. Lord, we pray that you will indeed give us the grace and the strength that we need to be those who both tell and show your glory, not pointing people to us, but to you as the one who has the power to change us and the one who has the power to keep us to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.